Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Again, I want to welcome you this morning. It's exciting for me to be able to teach this morning. Uh, Three weeks ago, we had one of our missionaries, uh, Dale Stewart, open the scriptures for us, and that was fantastic. And that was a little bit not planned at the beginning of the summer, but I'm so thankful it worked out. And then two weeks ago, we had Mark Walters, who serves as one of our elders and is a great teacher of the text, uh, preach from Psalm 133 on unity. Last week, I wasn't here last week, I was, I was visiting family uh, with my family down in Ohio, and um, I was so thankful, though, to be able to tune in via our live stream. So I had the live stream experience last week. Those of you at home, awesome. Glad you're here. Um, I had that experience, and I was able to tune in and, and join us together as we studied Psalm 134. And now jumping into the fall, here we go to the book of Romans. The book of Romans is where we're going to be today. I'm so, so thankful uh, for the team of teachers that we have here Um, and just the ability that God has given them to clearly teach his word. And so um, as we jump into this, uh, we are going to do something with Romans this fall. We're not going to do the whole book of Romans. Uh, That would take a while uh, to do it justice. Uh, But one of the things as we were talking as pastors and, and, and just trying to pray through, God, where do you want us to be in the scripture this fall? The practical commands of Romans 12 and following were things that kept coming upon our hearts, at least coming upon my heart. Romans 12 through 16, and really 16 has a lot of the greet this person and greet that person and all that kind of stuff. So it's Romans 12 through 15 is what we're going to be looking at, God willing, over the course of the next several months. And um, we'll have a couple of interruptions in there for some special things. But Um, Romans 12 through 16 are a very important hinge to the letter. In Romans 12, it says this. It says, Therefore, my brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, and Paul goes to talk about, "I I want you to live a life of spiritual worship to God. Submit yourself to God. This is your reasonable worship. And he has other commands. And we'll talk about Romans 12, 1, 2, and 3 next week in more detail. But whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, as the old adage goes, you want to know what the therefore is there for. And so what we wanted to do today is we want to say, why, why does the therefore matter? And to do that, we have to look at Romans 1 through 11. So our challenge today in the time God has given us is Romans 1 through 11. Take a deep breath. It's going to be a great morning. Um, Romans 1 through 11 is a series of text that describes what God has done for us through his son, all right? Most of the practical commands of Romans, of y'all do this, y'all do that, y'all do this, y'all do that, that comes in 12 and following. What happens in Romans 1 through 11 are just incredibly incisive doctrine and theology of what God has done for us. The other way you could look at it is this. 
Romans 1 through 11 describe what it means to live in light of God's mercy. Romans 12 says, therefore, my brothers, in view of God's mercy, mercy here, I love what one um, messianic rabbi said. He said, you want to know what God's mercy is? God's mercy is what he has done as explained by Paul in Romans 1 through 11. So, as homework this week, I'd love to give this to you as homework. Read through Romans 1 through 11. Preferably, if you can do it all in one sitting. Try to follow the flow of Paul's narrative thought. Because this is a letter. It's not a book, okay? It was written on a scroll, and it was written to a people at a specific time and place. There's heart involved in this letter. There's love for the people involved in this letter. And this letter addresses the church at Rome. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But simply put, the church at Rome was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. Now, because of this, and because of the two different cultures that are exhibited with this, you've got this Roman pagan culture of people who come into faith. You've got this observant Jewish culture of people who come into faith. They go, how do we put these two things together? Because living together in unity is sometimes challenging. Do any of you know what I'm talking about? We live in a world that is incredibly divided, even within the church. Paul is writing to a church that in some ways is divided, and he's going to have words for all of them on how they are to live, not just think, but how to live. Um, Romans is very, very important for theology, right thinking and right understanding about who God is and what God has done. But consistent with a Jewish thought, the Jewish people don't just care about right theology. They care about how do we walk this out. In fact, there's a word that is used to describe this. It's the word halakha. Say that with me. Halakha. Yeah. And it just means, yeah, very, oh, it's very good. Um, that just basically means it comes from a word halak, which means to walk or to live. It's how do we live, how do we walk out the faith that we have in the Messiah Jesus. And so the world of Jesus and Paul was very much concerned about both right thinking and right walking. So um, let's pray because we have a task ahead of us. And even as we pray this morning, I just want to remind you, I know s- several of you subscribe to our prayer email updates and, and are familiar with Mitch Vanderholst, who was an elder here at our church, who, a retired elder at our church. Um, and he's undergoing some very significant cancer um, struggles right now. He's currently in Blodgett Hospital with a broken leg and all sorts of stuff. But I, I just want to spend a moment, ask God to teach us and also pray for Mitch this morning. So join me in prayer, please. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your word, for how it teaches us and instructs us in what is right walking before you. And Lord, we pray for Mitch this morning and for Sharon. We pray, God, that you would bless them and give them your peace. Even as he has shared with me, the scripture he has memorized is, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power of love and of sound mind. God, I I pray that you would give that to him with great abundance today and that you would be their peace as they walk these difficult days of very significant cancer throughout his body. Thank you, God, for uh, meeting us here. Guide us in truth by the working of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. All right. So what we have this morning is I, I want to just remind you, Paul is writing a letter. Paul is writing a letter, and this letter is, is something that he poured over. Chad, if you can go to the next slide, that would be great. Perfect. Okay. So imagine Paul. He's bent over a desk. He's writing a letter, or, or better yet, he's likely using someone else to help him write this letter. And so he's dictating to someone, and he's saying, I want you to write these words. Now, he has not been to the church in Rome, although he knows some of the people who are there. Remember, the Jewish, um, or, or the early church was predominantly Jewish, and then the message of Jesus went out to Judea, Samaria, to the rest of the world. But so they would gather around, and they would um, come to Jerusalem for the various feasts and the festivals. And so there was, there was a sense of community, even within the broader Jewish community. Paul is a Jew. He was born in Tarsus, in Asia Minor. Um, he, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he describes himself. He, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a, a person, being a Pharisee, who was very observant to the Torah and to the scriptures. He was, you know, very uh, um, careful to observe everything in the teaching of God. The Pharisees were actually only one of many subgroups within Judaism. Some, sometimes it's easy to think of a Jew is a Jew is a Jew, but really you've got Pharisees who believe certain things, Sadducees who believe some things that were a little bit different. You had zealots who were very zealous for the faith of Israel to the militant extent. Um, you had Essenes. You, you had these different groups within Judaism. Paul is a Pharisee. He knows the scripture. He was trained by a guy by the name of Gamaliel, who is this um, Jewish scholar in Jerusalem. So here he is, born in Asia Minor. He understands the Gentile world, and yet he also is thoroughly Jewish in everything he does. Now, Paul has an incredible experience early on, uh, not early on in his life, but, but after a while, him being zealous for God, he, he sought to bring to an end the followers of the way. In other words, the followers of Jesus. And, and God meets him on the road to Damascus. Uh, Rabbi Saul has this incredible encounter with the Messiah Jesus. See, see, Paul believed that he was serving God by persecuting followers of this man, Jesus, and Jesus confronts him in a vision, and he says, Paul, the work you're doing is actually not working for my kingdom. It's actually working against it. It's working against it. You're not out for God's purposes. You're out for other purposes. And he has this encounter with, with the Lord that makes him fall before God. This experience changed Paul forever. And he went from understanding Judaism and the teachings of the scripture to understanding Judaism through the matrix of Jesus. The scriptures became open to him. He had some people come, come alongside him and explain to him who Jesus was, what he did, and all these kind of things. And it was almost as if, uh, I, I don't know if you wear glasses, I, I don't, but I've, I've been told, like, like you wake up in the morning and you can't see a blessed thing because everything is blurry. You reach over, you grab your glasses, you put them on, and all of a sudden, what is blurry becomes clear. And I have to imagine that's maybe what it was like for Paul. 
he begins to see his faith, his Jewish faith from Abraham and all the way down, actually from Adam and all the way down, but Abraham's central figure, uh, he begins to see it through the person of Jesus, how Jesus comes to fulfill all the sacrifices, how Jesus comes to bring fulfillment to the teaching of scripture, and how Jesus goes before and is the lamb who is slain so that people can be made right with God. This must have rocked his world. Paul has this incredible encounter with Jesus, and then he goes on to become an apostle for the message of the gospel. Romans chapter 1 is where we are going to be for just a moment here. Here's how Paul describes himself in Romans chapter 1. Notice what he says, verses, uh, verses 1 and 2. Um, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, a slave or a servant, your text might say, called as an apostle and singled out for God's good news. So just imagine, Paul's writing a letter. What is the first thing he wants his people to know? Well, my name is Paul, because he doesn't know this congregation personally. My name's Paul, and guess what? I'm a slave. I'm a slave. I'm a servant of the Messiah, Jesus. Now, one of the themes that happens as you read through the book of Romans this week, one of the themes that you'll see is there's this idea of slavery that comes up. It talks about being slaves to sin and slaves to God. Paul begins his letter by saying, I'm a slave of God. What is he saying here? He, he's saying that my whole life is for the Lord. My, my whole existence is to serve him no matter what. Slave of the Messiah Jesus, called as an apostle. An apostle is someone who is sent out, and he's sent out with, with news. And it says, singled out for God's good news, which he promised long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What is this news? Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 3, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh, and who has been declared to be the powerful Son of God by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. Okay, so he just packed a whole bunch of stuff in there, but he basically says, I am all about Jesus. You want to know who Jesus is? Jesus, Christ our Lord, descendant of David according to the flesh, declared to be powerful Son of God, resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit. Okay, he packed a whole bunch of stuff in there, but he's describing whom he serves and why. And he says in verse 5, we have received grace and apostleship through him to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. Now, now notice that. The obedience of faith among the nations. Not just the Jewish people, but obedience of faith to all. He, he, his desire is to preach the gospel to the world. He wants to go where the name of Christ has not yet been preached. So that Jew and Gentile might be servants of God. In verse 7, Paul gives a bit of a, um, an, an idea of whom he is writing to here. All right, so Paul's passion in life, Jesus. Who is he writing to now? He's writing to, if I can get my clicker, Chad, go forward to, please. Um, he is writing to Rome. He's writing to the city of Rome. And you can see in this, it's, it's expansive. Rome in the first century was the largest city in the ancient world. It was the center of the civilized world. All roads lead, led, 
not lead, all roads led to Rome. All right, Rome was where everything happened. It was the most powerful military in the world at that time. They had so many other satellite provinces, you know, places like Corinth and Philippi were, were, were places that were like little Romes. You know, if you were Roman, that was a huge, huge deal. This was the center of the civilized world. Now, the population, kind of difficult to, um, to figure out. Scholars estimate it's around one million people at the time of the first century. Now, within that one million people, they estimate somewhere between 20 and 50,000 people were from Jewish lineage. And so you, you have a relatively small Jewish population in Rome at this time. Um, the scholarly consensus of the book of Romans is that it's written both to Jews and to Greeks and or Gentiles. Uh, it says Jew and Greek oftentimes in here. It's basically anyone who is not, gen or anyone who is not Jewish is when they refer to, for, refer to Greek or to Gentile here. Um, and the Jewish population subsequently was in the minority within this community of faith. Um, Archaeology indicates that the Jewish inhabitants in Rome were predominantly poor. Um, Roman sources, and, and here's the tension that we have to understand within the letter. Um, Roman sources explicitly condemned Jewish people for things like circumcision because they viewed it as mutilation. And circumcision for the Jew was a sign of the covenant promise. So big deal to the Jew, looked down upon by the Gentile. Um, they also, Romans, would, would look down upon Jews for the Sabbath because they, they would view it as an excuse for laziness. And they would also look down upon the various food customs that Jewish people followed in accordance with the Torah. So just imagine you have a congregation of people who are following Jesus not all of them are alike and all the same. They have one thing that brings them together, Jesus. Jesus brings them together. What he has done for them brings them together. But Paul is going to write, and he's going to instruct in the book of Romans, here's the right way to think about this. Here's how it's consistent with the scripture. And then he's also going to say, here's how you should live this out. And he's going to have commands that seem to be a little more geared towards Gentiles. And he's going to have commands that are going to seem to be a little more geared towards Jews. He wants people to live in unity. In fact, in Romans chapter 15, you'll read it this week, he, he says that with one voice, we might glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. With one voice, not with a multitude of voices, but with a unity of voice. Now, in a world that is incredibly fractured in a world where there's division on left and right pun intended in a world where you grew up this way and i grew up this way and another person grew up this way what does it mean to follow jesus together this is why romans matters um a good way to to overview the book. And here, I'll, I'll overview the first um, 11 chapters for you, hopefully quickly, in the next few moments here. Uh, here's one way we could structure it. Chad, go to the next slide for me, please. Um, I, I, I like how Dr. Randall Smith did this, and so I, I borrowed this from him. The first three chapters predominantly have to do with this idea of condemnation. Chapters four and five, and those are rough chapters. There's, you can be more specific on breaks, but for simplicity's sake. Uh, chapters 4 and 5 deal with justification. Chapters 6 through 8 deal with sanctification. 
Chapters 9 through 11 deal with vindication. We're going to go through and talk about these. Um, But they form a logical order for Paul of when you did not have a relationship with God to the point in which God has made you holy by the work of his spirit. So there's this whole salvation event that goes on throughout the book of Romans. And then he comes to chapter 12 and he says, all right, in light of all of this, in light of what God has done for you, here's how you should live. So let's talk about this for just a minute. Um, the first section in Romans here, after a brief introduction, Paul states one of the original or the central themes of this letter and his ministry. Look with me, please, at Romans 1, verses 15 and 16. He says, um, actually, verse 14, uh, I'm obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the good news to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. All right? In verse, um, in verses, go to my notes here. In verse 15, if you underline in your Bible, you can underline good news. So I'm eager to preach the good news, okay, to you who are in Rome. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now the word behind both of these terms, good news and gospel, is the same word. It's used slightly differently in the grammar sense, but it's this word that means to proclaim good news, to declare a victory, It refers to the victory accomplished by God the Son over sin and death. In other words, this good news is that under Jesus, sin no longer reigns, Jesus does. That's what Paul is proclaiming. And this good news is for all. It's for rich, it's for poor. It's for Jew, it's for Greek. It's for slave, it's for free. It's for male, it's for female. No one is excluded from this good news. This good news. And what is this good news? Okay, so that's what the good news is. But it says, because it's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, um, for the Jew and the Greek, for in it God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. One of the things I want you to note is that because it's, salvation is God's power, all right? The gospel is God's power. It's also, in verse 17, it is God's righteousness that is revealed by faith to faith. As a part of Paul's argument, he is all consumed with what God has done. All spiritual life for Paul originates with God. I I love the way one scholar puts it, salvation is God's redemptive initiative. Okay, redemptive initiative. It's something that God has initiated on our behalf. Now, man has a response, but it's the the initiative of God to... to, um, to make redemption possible. Why is that the case? Here's why. Man is wholly condemned before God. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, condemned before a holy God, H-O-L-Y. God is holy. God is set apart. God is not like we are. And yet God meets us where we are. Um, salvation is an act of God's Now, in verses 18 through 32 of chapter 1, Paul goes on to describe how the whole Gentile world is guilty. 
He says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known can, about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been uh, seen since the creation of the world, being understood that what he has made, being understood through what he has made. In other words, he's saying this, you look up at the sky, and here's a photo of the horse nebula in Orion. You look up in the sky. I can't remember how many hours it took to take this picture to get the exposure of light needed. Oh, it was a lot. You look up in the sky, and the heathen world looks, and they say, nope, don't believe in a God. And yet, when you consider the work of the hands that made this, could it have happened by chance? God says, no. He says, I've, I've given you my glory spread out through all the earth so that you might see that there is a creator. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse for though they knew God, they did not glorify him or show gratitude. And we begin this downward spiral in Paul's argument. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. And so um, the response to seeing the handiwork of nature around us is something that should cause awe and wonder. When we look at the heavens, we should go, wow, look at what God made. And yet, many don't. And the text says, so God gave them over to worship that which is created instead of the creator himself. And so he describes this within the Gentile heathen world. He says, this is, he, he says therefore I've given them over. I've given them over to what they want. Degrading sexual passion, unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. He says they are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. He says they are gossips, verse 30 of chapter 1. Slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil. They're disobedient to parents. They're undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they, full know, they know full well God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they even applaud others who practice them. All man is condemned before God. One of the ways we see this condemnation is we see all these character, characteristics in our lives and in the lives of the world around us. But Paul's argument's not just, you know, the world who is separated from God is going to die. As he goes on, he says, essentially, this isn't just for the people who are immoral. This is also for those who think they are good. Um, he says in chapter 2, Therefore, any one of you who judges is without excuse. In other words, those of you who think you might be good because of something you have done, uh, you're without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. 
The one who says, basically, I'm a good person, yet judges another is without excuse before God. That's the idea of the beginning of chapter 2. But Paul then goes and he takes this to the next person. He says, all right, the religious people. Now, the religious people of the day would have been the Jewish people, but I think we could relatively say the people who just go to church. You're religious. You, you, you know, you show up at 930 on Sunday when you've been used to 10. Good job. Um, you, you, you tithe. You do all these things. But, but you think that through the observance of certain things, you have right standing with God. And he continues to say specifically about the Jew who would have engaged with certain rites like circumcision and other religious rituals. You'd think, man, we, we have the prophets, we have the Torah, we have circumcision, we have sacrifices. Of course, we're made right with God by what we do, right? I mean, we're religious. And he says, nope, not so much, not so much. Now, there are advantages that come from growing up within a family of faith. There are absolutely advantages that come from that. But there, you cannot substitute the advantages for saving faith. It's like when, when we dedicate kids, we don't recognize that kids are actually saved. We, we pray that they would come to know Jesus as their Messiah, but we, but we pray that that would be spoken to them and that they would hear the gospel at a young age because if you've ever worked with a young person, you know that lying comes natural because it did for all of us, by the way. Uh, you know that um, deceit comes natural. You know that anger comes natural because it's a part of how we have grown up in a condemned and a fallen world. Paul's point here is so easily summed up in chapter three when he says, there was no one righteous no, not one. And the verse that many of you have probably memorized, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many people are involved with all? All. Thank you. Thank you, a couple people there. Yeah, all people means literally all people. Every single one of us was condemned before God. Every single one of us. That's the message of Romans 1 through 3. It's glorious, isn't it? Right. But then we come to the next couple chapters. Notice with me, please. No one is righteous because of their background. They are only made righteous or justified by God's grace. Um, chapter 3, verse 24. They are justified freely by his grace. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All right? The only way people are justified or made right with God. Justification. Really big term. It's a judicial term, and, and it refers to a judge declaring a person innocent of whatever charges are levied against him. In other words, you're caught speeding. I know you don't speed, but you're caught speeding, and you're going 30 miles over the speed limit, and you come before the judge, and the judge looks at it, and he says, not guilty. He, he doesn't look at you as though you have faulted. That's what happens in justification. It happens in justification. Now, how is this possible? Well, it didn't come at a cost. Notice with me, please, chapter 3, verse 25. God presented him, him being the Messiah, Jesus, as a propitiation. In other words, an offering of atonement through faith in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. So it's not the person who is condemned who is declaring themselves righteous. It's God who is declaring them righteous through trusting in what Jesus has done. 
Now, I was, I was reading through Romans yesterday, and one of the things that I, I hadn't noticed in the same way before, because sometimes I think, at least I do, maybe you don't, but at least I think that my belief is something that I have done, all right? We're, we, we often like to say, here's what I have done in order to receive. Um, notice with me, please, chapter 4, verse, um, verse 3 and following. Actually, verse... Uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Um, what then can we say that Abraham, he's going to go talk about Abraham, our physical ancestor has found. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to brag about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credit to him for righteousness. Okay, he believed God. So did Abraham do something for his righteousness based upon this? Now, verse 4, to the one who works, pay is, consider, is not considered as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him, who declares the, godly, the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. In other words, believing is not working. Believing is trusting that what God has said is true. Believing is, is, is going to God and saying, God, I agree with you. It's not something we work for because the work was the atonement work that Christ has done for us. The work is that we are justified by God's grace and that big word propitiation is very key to that whole thing. Now, Paul is using this example of Abraham. Abraham was the patriarch of Israel, all right? It was through Abraham all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. And there's, uh, try to go to the starry sky, all right? So when, when, God, when God came to Abraham in the book of Genesis, he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you a, a father of a, of a multitude. Now, what's ironic about this is Abraham had no kids, all right? By the time he and his wife had kids, Abraham was 100 years old, and his wife was 90. That's nine zero years old. All right, not really the time for childbearing. But he uses Abraham as an example of what it means to be, to be made righteous before God because he believed what God had said. He believed what God had said. Abraham is the example Paul uses for justification. What God said, Abraham believes that God would do, and it's credited to him righteousness. Abraham's faith had nothing to do with Torah observance, circumcision, or doing something, all right? The Torah hadn't been given yet. Circumcision hadn't been enacted yet at this point. He didn't do something. Rather, he simply believed that what God said, God would do. What God said, God would do. Now, God's promise, you'll be a father of nations, is a big deal here. But notice how Paul describes Abraham's response to this. Um, chapter 4, verse 20. He did not waver, that is Abraham, did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but he was strengthened in his faith and he gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. In other words, what God had promised, God would do. Therefore, it was credit to him as righteousness. Now, it was credit to him was not written for Abraham alone. Aha, uh -huh. it's not written just for Abraham alone, but also for us. Why does this matter? 24, verse 24. It will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All right? 
He says this so that later hearers, including us, would be reminded that it's not our striving that makes us right before God. It's our trusting that what God has said, God will do. And the result of this is that being declared righteous by God results in peace through God and through our Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 5. Now, I I love what one writer says about Abraham. He, he, um, He translates that that verse in Romans 4.20, uh, around there, he says, no anxious uncertainty made Abraham doubt God's promise. Now, if we go back and we look at Abraham's life, we know that his life was a series of ups and downs. But from the writer of Scripture's perspective, no anxious uncertainty made him doubt God's promise. I don't know about you, but sometimes my life is filled with anxious uncertainty. God, are you really going to do what you said? God, are you really going to bring to fruition that what you have promised? No anxious uncertainty made him doubt God's promise. In other words, his view of God was so big that he's like, God, you have this. You you have this. I can trust you. God, I trust you. Now, being declared righteous, as I said, Romans 5, leads to, uh, by faith, leads to having peace with God. So under under condemnation, we had this master. We were slaves to sin. But now by grace through faith, followers of Jesus have a new master. And chapter six through eight discuss what does it mean to be set apart to serve this new master? What what does it mean to no longer serve sin, but rather to serve God? Now, sanctification is a big word that simply means to to be holy or to be made holy uh, or to be set apart. Uh, it, it's, it's something that describes who God is. God is set apart. We sang it this morning. God is holy, holy, holy. Now, in Hebrew, that's the way of saying God's not just holy. He's really holy. And he's not just really holy and holy. He's like incredibly really holy. It's like putting underlines and caps and bold and exclamation mark on the end. It's a way of saying this is, this is something grand. When you see something repeated three times in succession in Scripture, pay attention to that. God is completely set apart. But God wants us to be set apart too. And how does that happen? Romans 6 through 8. When someone believes what God has done for them through Jesus' death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes into their life. They're called to this new way of life, but but they're not called to live in their own strength. Because their own strength, the strength of their flesh, is failing. Rather, God comes in and he performs a heart surgery upon their heart. He gives them the Holy Spirit to lead and guide them in what is true and what is right. So that they might honor God in all they do. Romans 6 tells us that as followers of Jesus, we are no longer slaves. uh, We're no longer to serve sin, but rather to serve God. Now, God's grace does not give us a license to sin. Rather, it has freed us to live for God, to become God's servant. Sometimes we look at the idea of freedom in this Christian sense, and we think, I can do whatever I want. Freedom is always set in the context of God's word, right? Freedom is never given to do whatever we want, contrary to the scripture. Never. Rather, it's that which we are to, um, to enjoy 
so that we can honor God, not just with our minds, not just with our hearts, but with our hands and our feet in all of our bodies. See, in our life, there is never a time when we are not serving someone or something. In Romans 6.22, describes how we are liberated from sin and how we've become now slaves to God, enslaved to God, and how this results in living a life that should better resemble what or who God is and what he cares about. Romans 6.22 says, But now, since you have been liberated from sin, you've become enslaved to God. You have your fruit, which results in sanctification, a work of the Spirit. And the end of this is experiencing eternal life. Because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, how do we live this new kind of life? Well, the first component to that is understanding who we are. You were dead. Now you're justified. Based upon what Christ has done in you, God has given you the Spirit. Based upon the Spirit's revelation and in actual presence in your life, you and I, as followers of Jesus, we become new in Christ, is how Scripture describes it. We, we become adopted as his sons and daughters, as Romans describes it. And understanding and living in this identity is absolutely essential because for us to live as God's servants, we have to remember that we are God's people. We are God's people. So identity is core to this. The next thing Paul goes on to discuss is what is this role of Torah? Now, Torah simply means teaching, law, instruction, okay? Uh, without the whole background of that, it's, that's the basic meaning. Teaching, law, instruction. What is the purpose of the Torah, of the teaching of God in the more broad sense, not just in the first five books of Moses sense? Um, what is the purpose of God's teaching? H how does that engage then with our flesh? Now, we have to recognize that God's teaching, his Torah, his instruction is holy and good, is what Paul says in Romans. What is unholy is the sin in our lives. Because we have God's teaching, it lets us know what sin is. And because we know what sin is, we understand that we cannot actually live out of all of God's teaching without God's help. Because we look at what we should do and we say, oh, as Paul says, Oh, the good I want to do, I don't do. And the evil I don't want to do, I do. And he says, who will save me from this situation? He says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he gives us the victory through the working of his spirit. Look briefly, and I won't read the whole passage, but look briefly with me at um, chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemns sin in the flesh by sending his own Son in the flesh like ours under sin's domain and as, sins, and as a sin offering or as a propitiation, an atonement offering, in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but we walk according to the Spirit. Now, look briefly. Verse 5. Um, For those who live according to the flesh, think about the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit are about the things of the Spirit. For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. He's going to go on. He's going to keep saying Spirit, 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 Spirit. For Paul, 
all Christian living begins with the presence of God working in you and working in me. Why? Because if we operate out of our flesh, that is the patterns and practices that we have developed over our years, if we operate out of that, we're going to operate out of ways that don't honor God. So God changes our hearts, and he sends us the Spirit, and the Spirit teaches us what is true. The Spirit convicts us of when we miss the mark. And he gives us the Spirit not just to convict us and to teach us, but to empower us for holy living. The spiritual gifts that are described in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are just that. They're gifts of the Spirit. To have those gifts means an absolute yieldedness to his power in our life. Let me say it a different way. God has given you and I everything we need for holy and righteous living. He's given you everything you need. He's given me everything I need. Why? Because he has given us his spirit. That's Paul's point in Romans 8. Now, Paul does not expect followers of Jesus to simply muster up the strength to live a holy life because he knows that they cannot do it without divine help. When we remember our identity, we know God's teaching and his Torah and his spirit teaches us. When we yield ourselves to God, instead of saying, I want to do what my flesh wants, we say, God, I want to do what you want. God, I want to be your slave, not the slave of my old way of living. When we do that, we yield our lives to God. God changes our hearts, and he makes us holy through the work of his spirit. Now, um, there's a, a great photo I want to share with you here. And this is, a, um, this is a seal. This is a scroll that has been sealed with clay. And a genuine document w- would be authenticated by the owner's seal. And in Ephesians, the spirit is described as the one who seals upon the person whose they are. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And he reminds you that you belong to God. You belong to God. Now, we struggle with this whole flesh versus spirit thing because we live in a fallen, broken world against, uh, around us. You know, I, as a kid, before I came to know Jesus, I had a terrible anger problem. You know, I, I think I've told you this before. I was the slamming kind of doors kid. You know, I'd run upstairs, I'd be mad about something, slam the door and, you know, try to, try to take it out on my brother. We'd wrestle on the ground and stuff like that. I was just not very nice. And over time, I, I, I became a follower of Jesus. And then over time, little by little by little, my life became marked by something other than anger and frustration. There's hope, parents. There's hope. It became marked, I believe, by the Spirit. The more I have learned to yield my life to God, and let me say this, the more I study the text, the more I recognize my life is not as yielded to God as God wants it to be. Each one of us is in a different place, and that's okay. But the more we yield ourselves to God, the more he makes us holy by his spirit. 
And these things that used to be our natural gut reactions become less and less. And we'll talk about that more next week as we talk about not being conformed to the patterns of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. We'll, we'll get there. Um, but I recognize, friends, I am often underyielded to the work God wants to do through me by the Holy Spirit. Paul comes to the end of this, and he just has great words, and I won't read them all. You, you can read them but he comes to the end of chapter 8, and he says, For I'm persuaded that not even death nor life, angels or rulers, things present, things to come, hostile powers, height, depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so we've got condemnation, justification, sanctification, deep breath, we'll finish quickly, vindication. Romans 9 through 11 is, is uh, all about how God will be faithful to Israel, right? It's all about how God will be faithful to Israel. In Romans chapter 9, Israel has rejected the Messiah. They've stumbled, but they have not fallen. And in Romans chapter 10, um, Paul teaches us that righteousness comes by faith to all. All can believe upon the name of the Lord. All can respond to God's message of grace, God wants us to be people who go out and who preach the gospel to all people. Now, the Spirit has a work in that that I can't fully explain, describe, all that kind of stuff. But Romans 9, 10 describe how God is working with Israel because Israel as a nation is becoming turned in many ways away from God. They're, they're stumbling and they're stumbling over the message of Jesus. They get the Jewish thing, but they don't get the Jesus thing by and large. Paul, as he travels throughout the Roman world, you know, he's writing this around 57 AD and he's likely writing from Corinth. He's traveling around the Roman world and he is uh, going to the Jew first and to the Gentile. And one of the things we find in the book of Acts is he goes to the Jews, he proclaims the message of Jesus and what God has done and the gospel to them. And there is hardness of heart. There's unbelief there. There's unbelief there. And, and it seems to me that Romans 9, 10, 11 also talk about how there's a hardening. I believe it's chapter 11. talks about how there is a hardening that comes upon the Jewish people. So that, that's verse 7. Um, so that the fullness of the Gentiles can come into faith. And Paul's dialoguing with this, but, but Romans 9 through 11, Paul is essentially saying God is not finished with his people because in Romans chapter 11, that's the message. God has not forgotten his people. God will regraft back into faith people. Uh, here's a photo of a man sitting on an olive tree. And Paul uses this olive metaphor. Olive trees are gorgeous. And one of the things you can do in agriculture is, is you can take a branch and you can cut one part off and you can graft another branch into it and you can make a hybrid of sorts. And Paul describes this in uh, Romans 11 verses, um, verse 20 is really kind of where, where we're at. I'll back up to 17. It says, now if some of the branches were broken off and you through a wild olive branch were grafted in among them, I have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree. He's talking to Gentiles here. He says, don't brag that you are better than those branches. But if you do brag, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True enough, they were broken off by unbelief, but you stand by faith. From a botanical point of view, Paul's argument in this verse basically says this. He mentions to his readers, he mentions it to remind his readers not to forget that their dependence is upon the root. 
And for Gentiles coming into faith, just like for Jewish people in the faith and coming to faith in the Messiah, Jesus, what should result is humility, not arrogance. And we're going to see how that plays out in the course of the next several chapters uh, in 12 and following. The idea is this, friends, Paul wants his hearers to know that he is a slave of God. He is all about serving God. He wants them to understand that there is nothing that they have done to, to uh, achieve or obtain their salvation. They were condemned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But you're justified by God's grace that he gives you through Jesus. And then he makes you holy by the working of the Spirit. And by the way, God has not forgotten his people. We blew through a lot of chapters in just a few minutes. God has not forgotten his people, though. And if God is faithful to his people, Israel, we can trust that God will be faithful to us as well. Because if he's not faithful to Israel, the opposite is true. If he's not faithful to Israel, why would God be faithful to the rest of his promises? Promises that he made way back in the Hebrew scripture. And the result of this should be a posture of humility before God. He comes to the end of Romans 11, and he says this, Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his paths. Who knows the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who is given to God that God should repay? He comes to the end of all this wrestling. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. At the end of Romans 11, Paul is still talking all about God. My question for us is this. As we enter into Romans 12 and following, let's make this a conversation that's all about God. What does it mean that God has saved and redeemed us? And how do we, in humility, walk after Jesus as his servants? I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know your faith journey. I, mean, I, know, I know some of you more than others. I don't know where you are this morning. My prayer for you is this. If you have not come to faith in Jesus as your Messiah, that you would trust him, that you would believe on the work he has done for you today. So that as we walk out chapters 12 and following, they might be something that God would use to bring great glory to his name and great Edification is a big word, but great blessing to those around you. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, that you would recommit your life to humbly serving God. Paul, a slave of God. Slave of the Messiah, Jesus. Paul's all about Jesus and what Jesus, what would bring Jesus glory. And so should we be. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Eleven chapters in just a few minutes. But God, how they teach us and they remind us of the work you have done for us through sending your Son. God, I pray that this week our lives would seek to, to, do, justice, to do justice, to love mercy, as the prophet says, and to walk humbly with you. God, work through us by the power of your Spirit. 
we yield our lives again to you today, God, so that Christ might be glorified. Blessed are you, O Lord our God. You are king of the universe. You are sovereign over all. We bless you and thank you for the gift of today. Another day in which to serve and to love and to be your hands and feet in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.